So let me tell you about our panel, starting on, uh, on your far left, my far right. Tim Duggan, he's content director at Sound Alliance, who do uh, sites like In The Mix, Faster Louder, Same Same, and uh, Junkie. Now, Tim has worked in advertising as a writer for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, and I noticed that his last tweet was a reminder that this session is being streamed live on Junkie. So, hello, Junkie. <laughs> uh, next along, next to me here, is uh, Simon Creerer. Now, he's editor of BuzzFeed Australia. Now, he describes, if you look him up on LinkedIn, his job is making stuff go viral on the internet. Uh, now, Simon has also worked for News Corps and for Fairfax in Australia and for The Times and The Sunday Times in the UK. Now, um, currently sitting at the top of uh, Simon's Twitter feed is the link 33 Reasons the Outback is Off the Hook. <laughs> Next to me on the other side, uh, Mark Scott, also used to work at Fairfax, uh, the managing director of the ABC for the last nearly nine years now. Mark's been at the helm of the national broadcaster during the time that it's gone digital in just about every conceivable way. He's uh, currently grappling with the reduction in government funding for the ABC, and Mark's also been known to tweet cat photos. <laughs> <laughs> Next to Mark is Peter Frey, Deputy Editor of The Australian. Now, before returning to uh, newspapers, Peter last year tried his own journalism experiment with the launch of fact-checking site PolitiFact Australia. Um, before that, Peter spent many years with Fairfax, including editing the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, also the Canberra Times and the Sunday Age. And he's also been known to retweet Mark Scott's cat photos. <laughs> Very kind. One mistake. Very kind. It was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> now... Before we, get, before we get to that question of whether cat videos can save journalism, we should probably establish that question of does journalism actually need saving? So, Peter, I'm going to come to you this first one. What actually is happening to the people and the organisations who produce journalism at the moment? And um, where, where, is, where does your organisation sit in that? Oh, OK, we'll take, uh, take this in order. I, look, I think we are living through the greatest expansion of human expression via, via digital means that, you know, in our history, in the history of humanity. We, there are, in a sense, more journalisms out there now than ever before, hence this panel in a way. Uh, there are more people who uh, fulfill the role of the, of, of the various roles of the journalists than ever before. They may be being paid for it, they may be amateur for it, they may be corporations pretending to be journalists, uh, there's all sorts of journalisms out there. There's all sorts of journalists out there, uh, uh, journalisms out there. Um, uh, and the other part of that is the audience is now bigger than ever before. So when we talk about, I don't believe we are the journalism in terms of people communicating, people seeking truth, people engaging with other people, people collaborating, and if you like, people putting up cat videos is in trouble. I don't think it needs saving. I mean, ultimately, I think what we're talking about in this discussion is really the business model that funds it, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But, but in terms of journalism, does journalism need saving? And will cats, I mean, cats aren't gonna save anything, let's face it, but uh, I mean, <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, in, but in all seriousness, we are living in this kind of golden age. And the other point I'd make is that I think we need to stop talking about uh, digital as if it suddenly appeared two weeks ago and destroyed everything. You know, we've been living in a digital age now for 20-odd years. I am not 
I guess, a digital native, but I'm certainly not a digital denialist. And it seems to me that, and hopefully this conversation may go some other way, to changing the way we talk about this stuff. Because we're talking about it, a lot of us are talking about it, a lot of us in the journalism industry are talking about it as if it arrived last week, it came with a bloody big axe and cut all our heads off. That ain't happening. That's not happening. Now, so. just before I come to Mark, you relatively recently joined News Corp. I'm a very new boy. How does it, you know, as a, as a new boy, how does it, it look for that organisation as a new set of eyes on Oh, it? look, I think I've enjoyed the Oz and the Oz does lots of really interesting things, but there's no other place that takes uh, policy, public policy, and I'm sure a lot of people would have disagreement about how it does it, but there is, it's a fact that the Australian is the one place that is deeply engaged with public policy and politics in this joint, in this country. And that is a very positive thing to be. And I know you are too, don't Thanks. you? Thanks. <laughs> uh, and I know those guys are as well in their own way. So, but that's why it goes back to my initial point, is that there is a lot of it out there. There are more audiences now. There are more people being journalists now than ever before. We should be happy. Okay, well, let's, let's come on to Mark. That central question, does journalism need saving? But, well, I, I think the critical question is how you fund it. I think there's no doubt there's this great exploration of ideas and debate. There are more forums, more outlets than ever before. The critical question is how you fund it. And I think that is just an unknown question at this point. And I agree with my old colleague, uh, Frey, about, um, you know, we're 20 years into this. But I suspect if you look at what happened in Europe after the invention of the printing press, it was a 100-year revolution. And I suspect that we'll look back on 2014 and think we were really just only at the beginning of working out what Moore's Law, what digitisation, what personalised technology and personalised choices means to the media industry. And I think there's... For those there's, unfamiliar with Moore's Law. Well, it just, it's the doubling of processing power. Mm. So your computers are getting more powerful, your, your phones are getting more powerful and your connectedness, uh, the opportunities of that just continue to grow. The, the unknown question, I think, is that, you know, when, when uh, Peter Frey and I worked together at Fairfax, there were 500 journalists working across the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sun Herald. Um, now it's closer to 200. Um, that's happened in big established newsrooms all around the world, and what has been stripped away has been uh, depth and specialisation and investigative reporting teams, and what is really interesting now if you look at the Australian, the Australian stands out as a survivor of that kind of deep investment in print in newsrooms in a way that it certainly wasn't atypical a decade or two ago. And as the business model has eroded the ability to make the deep investment in journalism, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of discussion, but who is actually doing the hard work of investigation, who is doing the hard work of the specialist people who really know that subject area well, digging, 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 and actually breaking news. And I have a, a, a theory, and it's just a, a hypothesis, that despite all the outlets that are swimming around journalism and news, the people who are really creating and setting a news agenda, who are breaking news every day, who are telling us new things rather than just commenting on it and analysing it, still comes down to a core of traditional newspapers and a handful of broadcasters. And most of those newspapers and broadcasters um, have far fewer people invested in breaking news and telling news now than they did. So, um, yeah, there's lots of news about, there are more voices, there's more discussion, there's more debate. But at its core, 
is there a greater investment in journalism as we've typically seen it? No, and that's driven by the business model question, and the business model question is central to all of this, and I we'll think. We'll come to business models in a few minutes. Um, Simon, we'll come to you now. Um, you've worked with both of the big, or the, the biggest traditional publishers in Australia, in News Corp and Fairfax. You've made the move you know, to the new part of the world. What's, what's your perspective? Firstly, this, this, this initial question, journalism is it in trouble does it need saving i don't think it is and i totally agree with peter that in actual fact we're living in this golden age of journalism and i think the fact that when i first worked in australia which was 12 years ago it was basically the abc and two big publishers and now that's fragmented into this incredible um really exciting environment for readers and for consumers and that we you know buzzfeed are here the guardian are here and investing very heavily huffington post are coming the mail are here and then there's newcomers like junkie and pedestrian and a whole load of other digital sites new matilda a whole load of people dedicated in, in one way or another to sort of breaking news. And I think that that's really exciting for, um, for the media environment in Australia. And I think that that's reflected in the UK and the US and in other markets around the world where the digital kind of revolution, if you like, is really invigorating how people are looking at the world. Um, from our point of view, um, we, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to our business model, but like uh, we, we, we've come from a place where we're really interested in cat videos and viral content and stuff like that on the internet. But uh, we're uh, moving into a place where we are investing seriously in investigative journalism, where we are um, putting reporters and bureaus around the world looking at the serious issues of the day. So I think, you know, um, we're very much at the beginning of, a, of um, the emergence of how this will reshape traditional media. I think that's the very exciting thing, an interesting thing to see how the, the models will collapse. And, you know, we're all, um, you know, very interested in seeing how, how Fairfax are going to respond and how News Corp are going to respond and how, you know, they're certainly um, in a difficult place. But, you know, I know having worked at News Corp that they're um, responding with a, a lot of um, nimbleness in terms of trying to, to reshape their businesses. The question I guess is can they reshape them fast enough to, to kind of compete with newcomers like us. So Tim, as a, as a new publisher, I guess you're arguably part of the problem for the newses and the Fairfaxes and the kind of, you know, the longer established organisations. Yeah, I, I think that the concept of what a journalist is is shifting and it's shifting really fast. So in, in the past, like 10, 20 years ago, the concept of a journalist was someone who worked for the big four, City Morning Herald, Age, AFR and The Australian. And there used to be about 2,000 journalists, say, uh, 15 years ago, it's about 1,000 now, and there's talk that it might become kind of, say, 500. So 500 of those kind of hard-hitting news journalists. But the concept, though, is that new media, so BuzzFeed, so Junkie, so In The Mix, Fast, Louder, Same, Same, Mess and Noise, all the, all the kind of websites that we do, it's not journalism per se in, in that same kind of way, but it is a new way of communicating with the audience. Um, and we're finding that is what our audience uh, kind of wants to hear. Um, I think... The fact that the Australian media landscape at the moment, as Simon mentioned, BuzzFeed, you know, BuzzFeed have launched very successfully. The Guardian have launched very successfully. Huffington Post are coming. Mashable's coming. TechCrunch is coming. And the problem is that no media are leaving. So there's 22 million eyeballs in Australia, um, and that space is just getting more and more and more crowded. And, uh, you know, I think that's it's a great thing because competition is healthy, but it does mean that these new business models, which is ours, which is very lean, Simon has six to eight staff, uh, we've got about 30 across five titles. Um, we are a super lean business model and we are competing and sometimes winning against these big organisations that have thousands, hundreds of staff. We've been banding around this phrase business model and I might stay with you, Tim. Um, you know, really what we're talking about is how you get to pay the staff. At the end of the year, you've got to bring in more money than you spend. How do you do it? So our business model, it's kind of built from the ground up as a digital business model. So each of our titles generally has about two editorial, two full-time editorial staff. 
So Junkie is an example. So Junkie, uh, a couple of months ago, won the title of the media brand of the year, kind of beating out The Guardian, Pedestrian, and Mamma Mia. And that's all done with two full-time editorial staff. So it's done extremely lean. Um, and then we sell advertising on the site. And then the biggest area, which I think we kind of, kind of might kick on a little bit later, is native advertising. So native advertising, where we kind of create content for brands that, for us, has grown from 0% to about 30% of our revenue in about 18 months. And your definition of native advertising? Uh, Three-pronged definition. Um, quality content, inspired by brand, and delivered in stream. So essentially, it is, it's, it's good stuff. Um, it is, you know, you, you can take a brand, you can kind of create amazing content for it, and it's delivered in stream, so it looks the same as every other piece of editorial. Um, I'll just give an example of a really good piece of native, and this kind of can, can show how, in a way, it's starting to, to help us kind of save this kind of concept of journalism. Um, uh, we're about to publish next week a piece that's been brand-funded by Kentiki. So Kentiki is a, a youth kind of travel brand, um, and it is a long-form piece. It's about 5,000 words written by an amazing writer in Melbourne called Sam Cooney. Um, and we uh, kind of a little bit like Into the Wild. We kind of took um, a story. The, the hook is six young Australians who moved to America. Um, they got an old school bus, and they kind of renovated it, and they travelled across America. And we used that to kind of investigate why young people travel. The piece is called Why We Travel. Um, it's an amazing piece of, uh, you know, journalism, I suppose, uh, and it's completely brand-funded by Kentiki. Um, and that, I suppose, is, you know, there's an example of how uh, our business model works. Well, Simon, your business model is native advertising as well. Um, firstly, BuzzFeed, is it profitable? Yeah, we're profitable, yes. We're, our, our, um, our revenue was... We, we turned over more than $100 million worth of sales last year. This is globally, right? Globally, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, and in Australia, we've, been, um, ha we've had um, native campaigns running since we launched. Our, we, we have no banner ads. We feel like the banner ad is dead, that nobody clicks on them, and I think the, the data really shows that. Um, uh, all our um, uh, revenue comes from native advertising, and we work with um, brand partners. We work a little bit different, I think, to um, how Tim works, in that we have um, still a very clear definition between uh, church and state, so our creative team and our sales team sit um, completely different part of the building and don't engage really with our writers at all. And uh, so uh, we work with, in Australia, we've been working with brands like McDonald's and um, ComBank and a whole lot of brands that are interested in, in targeting kind of a youth audience. And basically, we don't just say, here's a, um, a burger you want to buy. We have a, a campaign that has the ethos of the brand attached to it. Uh, well, with McDonald's, we're doing a campaign on... on um, like uh, toppings, so you spend an extra 10 cents, you get an extra piece of toppings, and we were just, we, we did um, clever, quirky, fun, shareable lists about ways you can just have, bring a little bit of extra to your life, a little bit of VIP, like living to your life. And the idea is basically learning the lessons of how we create shareable content and how it moves socially through Facebook and Twitter, and actually um, pushing that content that way for the brand, so that it actually becomes something that people, they actually enjoy the piece of content and they want to share it on their own, so it's actually being distributed for nothing for the brand. Well, Mark and Peter, before we move on from native, and I'll come to you first, Peter, um, how do you actually feel about native advertising as a uh, look, traditional I, journalist? <clears throat> I want um, to explore any way that makes dough for, to support journalism. I would love to see someone in this room put their hand up and say they're prepared to fund Kate McClymont's reporting on ICAC. And I would love to see a corporation in this country prepared to fund Kate McClymont reporting on ICAC. The point is that there ain't such a thing. And I think when we talk about journalism, we need, to be talk we need to be clear what we're talking about. There are many types of journalism. If anyone in this room's ever done any journalism, you know, 101 academic work, there are multiple ways and functions of journalism. But I think what, we're, what I want to talk about for a second is that journalists exist to seek truth. 
I don't believe that, and, and I'm sure it's a wonderful piece, the Contiki tour of, you know, man versus wild or whatever it is. I'm sure it's great, and I'm sure it's a very entertaining piece. And I, read, I have read some great stuff on Junkie, by the way, and I'm not slagging Junkie, and I'm not slagging BuzzFeed. I've read great stuff there. But if, if we take as our central premise, our central starting point, that journos exist to seek truth, and that journos need to work in collaboration with audiences, with, with people to seek truth, that's another thing that I think the digital world gives us, then we are not, we don't have a business model that sees us being supported by native advertising. I, as I say, I'm all for you know, bringing dough in through the door. I, I'm not that precious about it. But I think we need to make a distinction that if we are seeking truth, then you know, it's a very expensive thing to do. And not a lot of people want to fund it. And I can speak from my own experience in PolitiFact. You know, uh, the only way we made dough, uh, well, we didn't really make dough. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a okay, minute. Well, okay, so that's my point. First. My point is that I think we need to be clear what we're talking about. Journos exist to work on behalf of the public to seek truth. That's the fourth estate concept. Now, mm. if that model, if we, I'm happy to discuss that because maybe that model's out of date, you know? Mark, are you, are you, are you comfortable with advertising? I don't think it is, by with, the way. With native advertising? We have, we have no plans to run native advertising on the uh, <laughs> ABC in the foreseeable future. Oh, I'm happy to, happy to make that very clear. Um, look, I, I mean, but I, I think the, the fundamental thing, Tim, though, is that journalism, and particularly the kind of journalism that uh, Peter's been talking about, has always been subsidised. It's always been subsidised. When we were at the Sydney Morning Herald together, it was subsidised by classifieds. You thought you were selling your car or trying to get a new employee, you were actually funding that newsroom of 500 people. And if it wasn't funded by that, it's been funded, you know, you look at News Corporation, the Australian is being subsidised by other parts of the News Corporation empire. Um, and, and so there's always been a subsidy that's needed to be found, and this is the latest way of... And I think there is an interesting question as to visibility for the audience, do the audience know that that is um, paid content, directed content? But I think, um, you know, there's often a good branding and identification uh, around that. And it's, but this is all a desperate pursuit to find new ways of maximising profit if you're in business, but also we are in pursuit of ways of how are we going to fund Kate McClellan, how are we going to fund that investment in um, traditional quality journalism as well. Well, and certainly, like, we basically, um, our number one video on BuzzFeed um, from a branded perspective is this Frisky's Hello Kitty video, which has done 15 million views. The fact that that's been so successful for that brand, and it's very transparent, it's for that brand, that's the thing that allows us to invest in an investigative team of six reporters, mm. and it allows us to invest in bureaus in, um, in you know, and have sending reporters to Gaza and to the Ukraine and to be to trying to discover, you know, like, the most, tackle the most serious issues of the day. Can I just ask, though, mm. on that cross-subsidy theme, and if you looked at the old model of the Sydney Morning Herald, the, the readers bought the paper because of the journalism, uh, but it was being cross-subsidised by the, the classifieds. But the thing that was driving the readers' attention was the journalism. What I don't understand about this model is that why really would you hire investigative journalists if, in fact, that's going to get a fraction of the traffic that the, um, the cat video is going to get? if in fact you're trying to maximise profit for your audience. Isn't that simply a waste of money? It wasn't a waste of money at the, at the Herald because no one was going to buy the newspaper just for the classifieds. So it was, that cross-subsidy was inextricably linked. I don't understand the link between 
foreign correspondence of BuzzFeed and cat videos? Well, I think it's scale. I think um, we're a private company and it's very much Jonah's vision that we would be, you know, take advantage of the fact and, and be responsible for the fact that we have this audience of 150 million people around the world and a mainly very young teenage 20-something audience and it's actually res our responsibility to be serving that audience the serious issues of the day and we've been discovering that actual fact young people really respond to those kind of things. Now, they're maybe not getting it from traditional newspapers, they may be not logging on to the BBC or the ABC, but they are on BuzzFeed and so that's, I think, where it's come from and I think that you know, we're not interested in monetizing reporting from Gaza or, or Max Seddon in the Ukraine but I think the fact is that the videos, the cat videos and all the other branded content are powering it and I think people don't come to BuzzFeed and really, you know, most people discover our content through Facebook so they discover one piece of content rather than the whole thing and they don't come in and browse but I think, um, you know, th th these things exist in streams, they exist in people's Twitter streams and Facebook streams and they operate separately so there's an audience that finds the cat video incredibly compelling and amusing, there's another audience that really wants to know about Russian troop movements in the Ukraine. So I think that's, they that's more of a that, that sounds like a proprietor model. That's yeah. almost like the Murdoch model that says, well, I'll run the Australian at a loss because I want to and I'm effectively in charge of the organisation and I'll drive that cross-subsidy. And that's, that's exactly what Kerry Packer did with Channel 9. And one of the reasons that you've had a, a cutting back of the investment in news and current affairs at commercial broadcasters is that old-style commercial proprietors like Packer would say, well, I don't, I'm not... I'm happy to make a lot of money, I don't, but I don't have to maximise my profit. I'll cross-subsidise cross because I want to invest in news and current affairs. And that sounds like it's... I think that's right. And I think model. if you look back a century ago, most newspapers were run by um, benevolent um, yeah. tycoons rather yeah. than... And ne didn't necessarily make a lot of cash. And I think, obviously, the 20th century was rivers of gold for publishers. But I think now, you know, we've got seen Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Yeah. You know, maybe uh, Gina Reinhart is the saviour of Fairfax. You don't know, but, you know it depends, like, kind of... <laughs> <laughs> perhaps not. <laughs> Maybe she is. Yeah. I'm going to bring yeah. in Tim, I'm going to bring Tim back in at this point. Uh, yeah, I think, it, sorry, I think it also comes down to the intent of a publisher. And you do have to think that a publisher exists to make money in terms of so they can keep publishing. But you do have to think, and I speak as a publisher, that there is a greater good of why you do this. So we don't exist just to publish cat videos. We exist to, to try and get information out there, to inform people, to entertain. Um, and I'll give you an example of how... I suppose uh, this argument works in terms of that I think the cat videos are saving journalism. Um, and an example, when I, when I say cat videos, I kind of mean the lighter side of content. Uh, so I kind of mean all, all that kind of light stuff. An example is uh, a Scott Ludlam piece that we posted uh, in kind of March last year, which is a video where he said to Tony Abbott to an empty um, West Australian parliament, he said, we want our country back. Uh, the post went viral, we got about 750,000 views just on Junkie. Um, and from that, we made advertising dollars. So, you know, we got some money in, and we decided, uh, as a publisher, that our role then was to kind of, like, take this story a little bit further. So we got a young journalist, we sent him to Perth, and he spent five days embedded with Scott Ludlam's uh, campaign on, in the lead-up to the West Australian Senate election. Beautiful. We published a 5,000-word piece on that, um, and that was an expensive exercise for us. That was, you know, we are a small publisher, and, and we used the, uh, you know, the proceeds of some relatively light, cheap, easy-to-produce content to invest it in what we consider for our audience to be journalism. So what do you think your ratio to cat videos to serious journalism is? Uh, at the moment... About it's 50 to 1, or what? At the, at the moment, it's, it's probably... I'd say the light content is maybe 70 80%. Mm. 
Animal content, single digits of BuzzFeed posts. So people have used animals as a way to bash us, and obviously I think animals are incredibly important. Um, uh, and I hopefully we'll discuss a bit more about Kevin. And what about as a percentage of <coughs> audience numbers? Oh, as a bigger percentage than that of traffic, yeah, because obviously cats are the most important thing on the internet. OK, well, let's, <laughs> let's touch on something which, um, which, which, which Peter alluded to, which is um, you, you, you left Fairfax and uh, invested personally to, to make a couple of sort of, I guess, journalistic experiments, one of which was uh, PolitiFact. Ooh. Talk us through that experience, and I, the impression I get sitting here is that you, you, you lost your money doing that. Uh, I lost my money and some other people's money, but uh, yeah, that's true. I didn't lose a lot of my own money. I don't want to sound like I sort of lost a billion dollars. Didn't have a billion dollars to lose. But um, uh, so PolitiFact was the idea, you know, it's a US idea. I brought it into this country to fact check the last federal election. And it's this idea that, uh, you know, there are, in essence, when politicians the politics essentially is a is a uh, is 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 sound bites. Is the way we receive politics is through you know grabs and statements. And so, are all those statements 100% factually true? Clearly, they are not. But are they all 100% factually incorrect? No, again, they are not. So, the idea of plea fact is to examine the statement, the factual statement, and then give it a gradation of truth from true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and then if it's complete egregious lie. Uh, pants on fire. <laughs> and, uh, and we drove, uh, we established uh, Police Fact in March of last year, and we had a glorious uh, six or so months um, until the money ran out and created a massive audience. Uh, I had a content deal with Channel 7, I was on the box a bit, and I also had a content deal, funny enough, with Fairfax. And uh, I would love to do uh, it all again sometime. Uh, what I learned from that, though, is that I wish I had fact-check what cats say, because I'm sure I would have been able to drive more traffic. <laughs> but um, no, I think that there is a market out there. It's an interesting thing. We were talking in the dressing room about crowdfunding. You know, crowdfunding is a, is a revenue model. And I really thought about PolitiFact as a crowdfunded, you know, could we do it? And the answer is, of course, we could have. But then I suspect that the people who would give to a fact-checking, a political fact-checking site, were probably tended to be on the left and that might destroy the business model of what PolitiFact was about. And I think we have to be very mindful of the, of the inbuilt biases of the audience. And, and these guys over there are particularly mindful of that. And, I, and then, of course, along came the ABC and the own fact check it unit and <laughs> kind of completely buggered me. So, <laughs> thanks, pal. Not to worry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no bit of no serious bit. point to that about what is the ABC for? Yeah. Is it a market failure organisation yeah. due to step back when commercial players yeah, are it's, doing it's, something? It's never only been a market failure organisation. Uh, the charter talks about um, taking account of what commercial broadcasters are doing, but we do programming of uh, broad appeal and of specialist interest. But you know, channels seven, nine, and ten have never said, "Well, when you're shutting down that seven o'clock news service, you know, we're out here doing news on commercial channels." We operate side by side. We all watched what had happened in the states. We all saw the emergence of uh, fact checking. There are about four different models of fact checking that emerged last year, and we were we were one of them. And I, I think that's a, that was a, a reasonable thing for us to do. And, um, you know, there are some things that it, a public broadcaster can and should do because it's hard for people to turn a profit uh, out of it. And, you know, there will, be this ever, there will be this debate as to, you know, are we distorting the market or not? But I think in a lot of these digital spaces, I mean, in fact, you put the fact-checking thing to one side, 
I mean, the problems that the newspapers are facing with um, paywalls and getting advertising online, that, that, that's not an ABC. ABC is not the cause of that. The cause of that is hundreds of millions of other uh, websites. We're not taking a dollar revenue from them. Most people don't just go to one website or another website. They go to a range of websites. And if the ABC wasn't there, I don't think it would make a skerrick of difference to the profitability of Fairfax and News Corp. But Australia would miss the ABC not being there. Peter. Oh, can I just jump in? You're going to get a brand. Do you want your applause? No, Sorry, no, I, I don't. <laughs> Look, mate, Sorry, can you, you give us applause? No, no, no. No, you've got to understand. He needs it. You're taxpayers. You get, they're, um, they're, they're owners, mate. They're, yeah, they're it's owners. like a shareholder <laughs> meeting so for they me. Have their money they, they, they want the 10 million bucks yeah, you spent yeah. on fact-checking back. Uh, can you, no, can one, I have a that? fraction of that. Yeah, a fraction. Okay. Yeah. So all I was going to say is in terms of uh, subscriptions, digital subscriptions actually are going up. Uh, and if you looked at uh, the Fairfax accounts they were at a week or so, a week ago, uh, you'll see that digital revenues are actually falling. The CPMs, the, the, the dollars per click, are actually falling. And these guys would know a lot about that too. I'll chuck over to them. But then you would too, Tim, in Umbrella. That the actual CPMs are falling and that it's actually... There is a really healthy thing happening here is that subscriptions are going up. I mean, yeah. look at the Oz, you know, uh, subscriptions now are going up 25% year on year. So paywalls... Yeah, before that be enough to pay sorry, for the sorry? journalism, though. Well, I, look, I think there's, there's more people reading the Oz than ever before. Yeah. And, and a lot of those, about a, about a third of those people are coming in paying through the, through the paywall, through the digital subscription. But the, so there's a plus in going there, on the, here. the critical question, I think the unknown question, though, is if, if you say that print stays are numbered, which gets people jittery and, and Murdoch says they'll be there forever and Fairfax, I think, changes its story a bit on this. But if, in fact, it was a digital-only play what would the revenues from advertising and subscriptions, how big a newsroom can it fund? Sure, and, and I would make the point at this point, yeah. and, and everyone's talking down, you know, it's been very common to talk down print, and, and God knows Fairfax does it, um, is that 90 cents in the dollar that the Oz earns comes through print. That... Now, at this point. Yeah. I'm not saying that the future isn't digital, but I'm saying at this point, and the trickiness in all this, in this massive debate we're having, in, especially in the traditional media, is what is the point? What's the inflection point? And okay. that is the but, scary But is that, a, is that a print strength story or is that a digital revenues weakness story? Because well, when we were at the Saturday Herald together, it was it selling 440,000 yeah. copies, it's selling 220,000 copies now. Yeah. And I think the unknown question is, when print has its day, uh, and the daily print newspaper has its day, how big a newsroom will a digital-only play be able to fund. Now, Peter, some people I'll come say, back to you on that. Matter. I want to bring Simon yeah. and Tim back in at this point as well. Yeah. Um, Tim, you, you know, you've launched a number of different sites. Would you ever look at a subscription model, for instance? No, not at all. Uh, so our uh, position has always been that the, the, the free to read, free to share, um, and that's because our model is based around shareable content. So if you want to, be, you know, people to be able to share it and to kind of put it on Facebook and Twitter, it needs to be accessible to everybody. Do you see it as a workable model in the right circumstances? Um, I would love if all of... I think every different publisher is going to figure out what their business model is and whatever works for them. To answer Mark's question, I think a digital-only model of the Australian would have far less journalists that wouldn't be able to support that. But I do think also that, that at the moment people seem to be dealing with the move from print to online 
Um, but the move from online to mobile has happened even quicker. It's called almost everyone unawares. Like our audience is about now about 60% um, use it through their mobile. And the ability to make money off a of mobile, if you thought from print to desktop was bad, <laughs> from desktop to mobile is, is yeah. minimal. Um, so that is kind of like the real discussion that happens. And that's only happened in about the past five years. Uh, the graph has just been like that to mobile. Now, Simon, clearly it's not your business model, but as a, as a journalist, do you, do you see paywalls as... Well, I, I pay for the Fairfax... I pay for News Corp, yeah. I pay for quite a lot of publications online because that's the only way of, of supporting them. But at the same time, our business model, I think, shows that you know, we have nearly 300 writers and editors, journalists around the world, and I think that, that and we're purely driven by um, you know, online and, and all our content is uh, it's free for readers. So I think that shows that you can build a newsroom um, w without um, requiring people to pay, as long as you come up with intelligent ways of um, um, delivering advertising and, and, and re creating revenue, definitely. Well, just a reminder that in a few moments we'll be um, happy to take your questions, so don't head for the microphone just yet, but start thinking about what your question might be so that you can, uh, you can pounce when the moment comes. Um, let's talk, and Tim, I'll come to you first on this, about who out there that we've not yet talked about is doing a good job or doing interesting things, either in Australia or globally, you think actually they could be a part of the solution? I think, I think digitally most of the big players have been discussed. I think BuzzFeed's doing great. I think Junkie are obviously doing well. Um, uh, the Huffington Post launch into Australia is going to be fascinating. Their, their model is based on kind of essentially a model of thirds, where it's one-third original content, one-third kind of scraped from the internet, essentially, um, and one-third kind of user-generated, where people kind of put opinions into it. Um, I think their, their model has been hugely successful overseas. Um, I... I I, I question whether it's going to work in the size of the Australian market, given how already busy and already influential all, all the media is here. I really like uh, Vox and 538, which are both started by former New York Times journalists and do a really good job, I think, of kind of explaining news in a deeper way. And BuzzFeed do quite a bit of that explaining stuff as well. I think that um, there's a real thirst for people to understand in depth an issue, and I think that the way that they use data to explain those things is great. Um, I think probably, uh, for me, the most exciting kind of brand in digital media is Vice. And I think overnight we've seen that um, Vice have raised another $250 million, valuing them at $2.5 billion. So I think if you look at um, their, their fantastic, uh, I think, 55-minute uh, video series on Islamic State, they're like basically the only... Um, the only team that have actually had somebody embedded with the Islamic State. There's five fantastic videos you can watch on YouTube for free. And they take you really deeply inside that story in a different way than you would get in anything else. And I think that the way that they're sending uh, reporters and creating video content, you know, that's a very exciting development. And I think um, you know, it's a probably a great challenge for people like the ABC and the BBC, the fact that they, they, these people <coughs> are, are so deeply into the story. And I think um, you know, it's going to be really... You know, I think their journalists are operating in, with, um, you know, in a kind of guerrilla style without big TV crews around them, without satellite trucks, they're using the digital technology at their disposal to shoot and film things a lot of the time on iPhones, and I think you know, it's going to be fascinating to see where Vice goes, and I think they're going to become a big player here as well, so I think it's going to be really interesting. Mark, who do you, who do you respect, well, who do you look to Well, I just think it, um, if you go back and look at uh, traditional media brands transitioning, um, three, I suppose. I mean, interestingly, uh, it looks like the BBC is about to overtake CNN as the biggest global news site, and I think, I think the BBC's on an extraordinary um, investment continues to um, evolve its digital play well. I think in the traditional newspaper setting, you've got these two interesting models working out side by side. You've got the New York Times that's been really quite aggressive about its um, uh, leveraged paywall, but still with a view very much that says, we are the New York Times, the world will come to us, 
and the world is coming to them in some degree, but again, the question will be what, do, what kind of newsrooms can those digital revenues reinforce? I think the Guardian model is the opposite of that, that says with that great analytics infrastructure, with that great reporting infrastructure out of London, you can create local versions of that with a relatively small investment of newsrooms in different places. I think the Australian experiments work very well for them. Uh, the American experiment on the back of um, the Snowden leaks has, has not economically done as well, but I think it's a very interesting model. And, and, you know, 20 of those around the world for The Guardian, I think, is another interesting way of getting that quality investment in journalism brand with a strong local uh, angle and providing what they talk about is credible revenues to support that in a philanthropic They also got model. a big, um, big support here when they launched, didn't they, externally? Um, yeah, they did. I mean, yeah. I, I think it was a big presence yeah, when they landed. But, but, you know, I think it was an example of, I mean, as you've said, these big global brands with all that investment that's made elsewhere uh, arriving here, and it'll, it'll take a relatively small investment of localism across the top of it mm. for it to feel like a local site, but to be quite a rich and powerful site. And that's what you're seeing. You know, we've seen it with BuzzFeed, you're seeing it with the Daily Mail, you're seeing it with The Guardian, you'll see it with Huffington Post, and, and more, I suppose, will come. Well, just before I get Peter's views on that, I'd like to uh, invite you to head either to that microphone on this floor or that microphone up there if you'd like to come in with a question after Peter. But, but Peter, who's, who's inspiring you? Oh, look, the, the, as, as, we, as we first started that, this is a golden age, so I spend my days... I do uh, follow Vox and 538 quite a lot. I think they're terrific. I follow what these guys are doing. Obviously, I follow the ABC. I think, you know, multiple things. I do, uh, I do like pedestrian TV, for instance. I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, so there's this wonderful, you know, you, there's a lot going on. Um, I think the question again is this. Do you know your audience? How well do you know your audience? And are you prepared to engage with that audience in multiple ways? And I think still, still, you know, uh, a, a newspaper like the, the, the Sydney Telegraph knows its audience, its audience, it knows it exceedingly well, and it engages with its audience exceedingly well. Uh, you know, the Oz engages with its audience exceedingly well. Obviously, the ABC does. So it's about what uh, I looked for uh, examples of, you know, uh, media, media, and there's so much media now, that has a successful engagement strategy with its audience, respects its audience, and lets its audience in. And I think the one thing we, know, we don't do enough of in this country is open the doors, as it were, and let the audience in. Because if the digital world teaches us anything, it teaches us that, you know, there's... Journos don't sit on Mount Journo anymore. You know, they're down here in the valley with the rest of us. And we, we journos, need to appreciate that and recognise that and not see it as the threat that it may seem at first, but see it as a great, great opportunity. In a sense, for people like me, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So okay. I'm, I'm buzzed up on that. Well, let's go to, uh, to some questions. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah, yeah. We'll go to the question. We'll That's take a question from, uh, from this floor first. Hi. And if you could tell us who you are as well, please. My name's Emma. Um, <laughs> OK, I don't want to get in the middle of your smackdown, but I think you both... <laughs> I, it sounds like you all agree that journalism is just giving people stuff they want to read, whether it's truth or entertainment. Um, I'm just wondering whether the thing that needs saving is advertising. Mm. Because it seems like people don't really want to read advertising. And it seems like you guys are actually trying to make them... Is that not a little bit sneaky? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Good question. Tim, you're the most commercial person on the panel. Yes, yeah, so there's a whole concept of native advertising. The fourth part of the definition that I kind of didn't mention was clearly signposted. So it's not designed to be sneaky. You're not meant to kind of like read a story and you get to the bottom, like, ha-ha, that was selling you soap. Like, <laughs> the, the concept of native advertising is um, we pay our writers 
better when they're creating native advertising, so because it's funded by brand, than we do um, when it's a normal piece, because we can afford to. So the, generally, the quality is a little bit higher. Um, the audience, as long as there's kind of like, you know, good quality control. So we've done about 300 pieces of native advertising in the past 18 months. Um, Junkies, uh, almost entire business model is based, based around native. Um, and some of those are great, some are not great, um, but we're con kind of constantly trying to make them better and better so that the audience actually wins. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, I think you're actually saving advertising because you're making it palatable. Yes, it is. Wouldn't you rather read a great, greatly constructed, beautifully designed kind of piece of content that somehow got to do with that advertiser as opposed to just a giant banner flashing at you? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I think, I think advertisers would think it's a golden era for advertisers. They had very few outlets. They were paying vast amounts of money at very, very high prices. They never knew who was watching. They never knew who was listening. Now they have all this analytics, all this data, all these different outlets. And, and the people who are, are struggling are those media outlets that really had a, a powerful, almost uh, oligopolistic position with advertisers. And, and it's the media outlets that have lost their power over the advertisers that's mm. led to the disintegration of okay, the model. Okay, that's a great question. So we've got a lot of questions, so we'll go back up upstairs for the next question. Again, if you could tell us who you are, please. Um, I'm Sebastian. Hi. In the context of news journalism and in the shift of the select selective pressures of sort of media, is everybody entitled to an opinion? Sure you are. Is that it? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, of course, of course. What, what do you mean by that, though? Just explain it a bit more, because I'm sure you're getting at something. Who you hate most? <laughs> <laughs> you've got a hate thing going on there. Come on. So there's a clear difference between well-researched journalism yeah. and comments on Facebook. And I'm just trying to... I'm concerned with the spread of information based on not factual yeah. elements, mm. but sort of hearsay. Mm. Can, I, I, can I just... Look, I think it's a good point, and, and clearly not all opinions are equal, that all opinions should be heard. Uh, you know, going back to this engagement question, one of the other little, very quiet little projects I'm involved with, which I've been involved with two years and it's really not going anywhere, but it's this idea that you can, you can have a more engaged and nuanced view of opinion. Uh, and so I've created a thing called Milk Pilot, which has five criteria, which ask people when they've read something, what they thought of it against enjoyment, uh, transparency, impact, uniqueness, a few other questions. And so seeking on a sliding scale to get people to engage with that piece of content. And I think that's sort of where, in the digital world, gives us the capacity to do that. I don't think Milk Pilot's going anywhere much, but it's a great fun thing to do. <laughs> but I, I do believe, yes, I don't think we're in the business of shutting down an opinion. Absolutely not. Well, they sound like BuzzFeed badges. That's how we brand our yeah, content. Our badge our content. Yeah. Our readers kind of vote things up and they give them badges yeah. based on how, how yeah. they respond to them. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's take another it. question, if you don't mind, please. My name's Keith. Uh, do you think there's a model uh, in the future for a totally crowd-funded, crowd-supplied, let me say, uh, journalistic site where the crowd is actually not just a feed for ideas, but is a coagulated source of information and somebody manages that, and that actually takes the place of your 500 journalism. Instead, you've got 50 million journalists producing 
articles. I think in some ways we're sort of almost there already in that mm -hmm. like what a lot of BuzzFeed does is kind of report the social web. So there's this discussion going on on social media. There's people talking, discussing things and arguing about it. There's things breaking all the time. So our reporters don't work in the same way that reporters used to where they spend a day working on something and at the end of the day they publish the kind of definitive version. The version that we publish is often the one that's been worked on all the time. Our reporters are sort of see sort of Twitter as a notebook and they kind of reporting as they go, learning and sharing what they know. And so I think we're almost at that place already that there's this kind of collaboration that people are undertaking on trying to, trying to get to the kind of core and the, the, the source, the truth of a story. And Mark, you were nodding at that point. That question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the old style journalism model was journalists in the newsroom who really didn't know what was going on, trying to find out what had actually happened out there. And, and so I think, you know, as, as Peter said earlier, part of the coming down of the barriers is a far more collaborative uh, exchange with our audience to more quickly tap into the expertise that's out there. And I think we've, we've had examples already when we, you know, current affairs teams used to work in absolute silence, in, in secrecy when they were doing a big story, whereas now we're more inclined to say, this is a story we're doing in four weeks' time, and to, and to try and draw in the expertise that exists in the audience inside. So whether, in fact, that's a, a self-contained model, as you described, I don't know, but there are far more opportunities that everyone's taking advantage of to tap the expertise that's out there. Okay, Peter, then Tim, then we'll take another uh, question just, just upstairs. Quick, just, um, just an example you might want to look at. Uh, in the fact-checking space, in Germany, in the last German uh, federal election, uh, there was a site called Factomat. And Factomat uh, was used sort of basic fact-checking things, but what it did, which was really interesting, was it went out to the audience and said, hey, what are you interested in fact-checking? Got lots of su suggestions come back, came back to them, and then they essentially boiled it down by how many people voted on it. So they put them back up, here's the top five, let's vote on it, and they picked the top three or something like that. So essentially that was using the crowd, it just, it's a little bit German and cumbersome to be honest, but, um, but nonetheless I think that there is a way of doing that, for sure, absolutely, I agree. Okay, thanks, Peter. Tim, I'll bring you in. Uh, yeah, I think that almost exists already, and it's called Twitter. Um, in in oh. terms of, you know, those entire news stories that are just, here's something better tweets, here's something better tweets. Um, and anyone can kind of, you know, give their opinion. And there's also sites, uh, New Zulu is one, where citizen journalists can kind of sell photos. They can go, you can take a photo here and you can put it up there and someone can buy it from you. Okay, thanks for that. We'll take a question from upstairs, and thank you for that question, Keith. Hi, my name's Michaela Callan. Um, I think my greatest concern with developments in journalism um, has to do mostly with content and the quality of the, the printed word, I guess, whether it's on computer or not. Um, I just wonder to what extent do um, media producers have to, when they're driven by um, corporate interests, what, what um, motivation they have to maintain the integrity and balance um, in journalism, because I notice even uh, the more reputable um, old-style print media sometimes are resorting to much more simplistic representations of news, um, I guess, because they're competing for people's attention and they're looking for shorter grabs. Peter, I'll come to you first. That feels like there's two issues there, quality and integrity. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's not a joke. I wander around sometimes saying to people, trust me, I'm a journalist. Uh, and, I, you know, people laugh, of course you should laugh, but, uh, you know, um, it they does strike me... as much as you thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Keep going, you're no, clearly, wrong. clearly not. We're laughing, at, laughing on the inside, it's OK. Yeah. Um, uh, it seems to me that, uh, that journos exist 
we all, if we all, we used to all understand, I think you have a great point, because I think we used to all understand what journos were, you know, okay, they're scumbags, but nonetheless, they had sort of a, a kind of a belief in the truth, go and find the truth, shine light in dark places, and they had a set of skills that enabled them to do that. Now, you know, and there is a real danger that as we move into this idea that everyone's a journalist, that not all, you know, not all journalists are equal. And I think that goes down to, and I'm interested in these guys talking about this, because it goes largely, I think, still to the power of the brand, and it's about brands you trust. Obviously, it's often about brands that reflect your own view of the world, which is also true, but it's about brands you trust. So, you know, you trust the odds to do the journalism because it employs professional journalists. Uh, I, I don't know if you've got any great concept about, you know, do you trust the journos on Junkie? You know, in 10 years' time, we'll probably be trusting them more than we trust the odds. I don't know. But right now, I think there's a real interesting point. And I think you're, you're, what it needs to be about is that journos need to be accountable. Uh, and journalists and people who say they're journalists, whether they're amateurs or, uh, or professionals, need to be accountable for what they do. Mark? Yeah, the only thing I, I'd, I'd add to that is that I don't, I don't think we should assume that journalism is like the court system, that there are a whole series of standards and independent integrity that is meant to follow. It's called the media business because it's the media business. Uh, and unless you've got a proprietor who decides that they're not going to maximise profit, if you're a publicly listed company and you have shareholders and a commitment to maximise return, then they will try and maximise the financial return of the business. And one of the changes you've seen in, say, a Fairfax over the last 30 years is a migration from a family proprietor model to an open shareholder model where they have to solve the journalism problem in a way that maximises the return for their shareholders. And, and in that, to, to that extent, it's not a public good, it's a media business, and whilst they're going to try and protect well, the brand and uphold the... Problem, isn't it? It's yeah. the balance of the public good and the business. But, but what you've seen, even though we've got the emergence of some new proprietors, by and large, the influence of the old-style media proprietors have gone. Most of the media companies that are listed, that, that we engage with every day, traditional media, are publicly listed companies, and they have a responsibility to maximise their profit, and they make choices accordingly. Mm. Well, let's ask that, firstly, of Tim. Um, tell me about a time when an advertiser has tested your integrity. Um, I don't know if I can. <laughs> um, but the reality, I think, of, of just to answer her question, um, is that in, as long as the journalists have the right intention, um, and the intention, of, as what Peter says, the noble things of you know, the search for truth and, and, and all those lovely things that journalists aspire to, um, I think the reality is that there are less resources today, there is less fact-checking, there is less um, subbing, um, in fact, there's a, there's a great term that was coined by a BBC journalist in 2008 um, called churnalism, which is um, the kind of like the rise of journalism as kind of like churning out press releases and just taking things off the newswire. Um, and that is, I think, a fact of the modern newsroom. It is a fact of decreasing revenues. Um, and I think that as long as the intention is there, then f from the journalist, um, I think we kind of have to take a little bit of the, that with a grain of salt. Simon, and, and it's then I'll really, take a question. Yeah, it's really interesting sure. to think about, like, our proprietor, Jonah Peretti, basically, um, he talks about this idea of the Paris Café, which is this idea that, like, you might be there in your Paris Café reading Jean-Paul mm. Sartre and the Le Monde and being very serious, and then all of a sudden somebody comes beside you with a really cute dog, and you kind of pat the dog and you feel, like, really warm and emotional about that dog. It doesn't mean that, um, that, that um, when you go back to the Le Monde or the philosophy that they're any less important. It just means that, that these things can coexist. They're not, you know, they don't need to be independent. And I feel like with BuzzFeed, we have 
a whole load of entertaining and amusing content, but also we have serious stuff as well. And I think the two can actually coexist, and I think you know, we can find business models where the two can coexist. Okay, thank you. Let's take another question from the floor, please. Sorry. Hi, my name's Juliet. Um, you've spoken about the fact that there is a great business model for journalism and it's moving forward. But there's a lot of journalists that are out of work, obviously. Mark, you've had to let go of quite a lot, and there's a lot in print as well. I've recently lost my job as well. What's your tips for journalists? Do we have to retrain, or do we have to learn how to make cat videos? Mm. Let's, Peter, you, sure. you lost your job at Fairfax. <clears throat> You're a good place to start. You know, um, one of the uh, riffing off this title <laughs> of this talk is... Um, uh, I think journalists need to save themselves, and I know that's really easy to say and not so hard, not so easy to do. But uh, you know, so I, I sort of left Fairfax in 2012, and I, I look back on that period now, you know, 80 months or so, as a great period of reinvention, where I went and learnt new skills. Uh, I think you know we need to become good at not necessarily cat videos, but maybe video and data analytics. Uh, we need to work out how we tell stories. I mean, one thing that these guys show, and actually the ABC to a large extent too, is that there are multiple ways of telling stories. Uh, yesterday afternoon, in fact, when I was doing the prep for this, I went on Storyfy and I did my first Storyfy, which just sounds like I'm 50 years out of date. But I, it was a really exciting thing to do. And, you know, if you haven't done it, go and do it. Uh, you know, there's multiple ways. You've got, there's ways to do it. So I think that's point one. How are you going to get paid? I think you should start your own website and find your own spot. Um, and then if that fails, hassle the shit out of these guys because they're going <laughs> to they're gonna give you a job. We have, we have two jobs open at the moment. There you go. It's <laughs> worked already. I'll take 10%. Well, actually, I mean, that, <laughs> well, that's a good point, Tim. Um, and what skills do you look for? Yeah, when, so, when you so we're actually looking for a travel editor at the moment and an uh, electronic music writer. So if, you, if you're a travel editor, oh, speak so. to me afterwards. Um, but an, another interesting space, and this is not for every journalist, is that almost every brief that comes through to us from our media agency, MCN, um, involves content. Uh, and a lot of brands are now, are now starting to hire ex-journalists to create content editors. Tourism Australia recently hired a, an editor um, ANZ launched a publication called ANZ Blue Notes, mm. which is uh, staffed essentially by ex-AFR journalists. Um, so there is, there's kind of like a bit of a shifting space. Um, it might not be for every journalist, um, but if you are willing to work with a brand, I think there's, there's lots of different opportunities out there. So, oh, sorry. I was working for a brand, so I'm wanting to get back onto that other side. So well, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> Speak to me afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and look, same question to Simon as well. You know, what, what actual journalistic skills do you look for? When I think um, for a company like ours, people really need to be digital natives. And I think, uh, I'm echoing Peter, but they really need to understand um, the motivations for why people share content as well. I think the thing is, like, um, people traditionally used to go to the newspaper and buy um, and, uh, the news agent and buy a newspaper. And now most people from us are, are finding content through Facebook or through other social medias. And I think it's a sense of understanding, you know, personally yourself, what what makes a piece of content shareable, why people would want to do it. So you have to really drill down into, um, you know, what can you discover, what can you, um, what skill set can you develop that will actually sort of reach a bigger audience? Mark, what, what journalists recruit for the ABC? What do they look like? Well, I mean, one of the things we found when we created News24 and we did a lot of recruitment was that your young journalists were arriving with a far more complete battery of skills than we traditionally had, and the ability to, to tell the complete story in their own right, you know, to film, to, to edit it, to package it, and deliver it all up together. So I think we're seeing more of that, uh, far more of that too, and the ability to operate very comfortably across platform. You really need to be able to deliver that story 
on the appropriate platform to be able to engage whatever audience you can find, and all our journalists are doing that now. And some more cats. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, the most shared story on ABC Facebook is actually a story about little penguins needing jumpers more yes. than any piece of news content. That's the thing. We know that. So, like, even at ABC, it's, it's a broad kind of I mean, here's the audience, and yeah. they all clicked on. That's now, it. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious we have probably already more, more questions than we have time for, so let's, let's try and go fast. We'll go back upstairs for this question, please. Um, my question's... Uh, my name's Stephanie, sorry. I've got a lot of young people in my life, 15 to 25, when I grew up, we were talking about what was on the news. I remember always having a newspaper in the house. We stopped buying The Australian about five years ago because my husband and I were the only ones actually reading it. And our dinner table conversation now is, what are the latest cat videos? Who's seen what and what's this? And I'll, I showed my kids a sausage dog in a hot a, a puppy in a roll the other day. They all goofed about, all thought it was great but sadly they'd seen it five years ago. <laughs> and um, so I wasn't very cool at all. Um, so I get that your business models, commentary, journalism used to sell products, um, feeds the desire for our young to live and be entertained. But my kids actually don't actually get the difference between Iraq, Syria, or the Ukraine at the moment except for the fact that they're really glad they don't um, fly Malaysian Airlines. Mm. So how do we go from this model that our youth are consumed by to actually getting them to be more globally aware and engaged, not for self-gain, but to actually become responsible citizens that are aware of the world and going to be our next leaders? OK, that's a good question. I think it's actually going to be... By the looks of time, I think that will probably be our final question as well, so I'll ask our panel to kind of wrap up as they go through. And Mark, I'm going to start with you. You're a former educationalist as well, so I, uh, yeah. maybe kind of look to the future a little bit. Look, I think, um, as we've engaged on it, we think young people are interested in news. It's just got to be packaged in a way that they find engaging and compelling, and I suppose the BuzzFeed model is if you can put it in an environment that attracts people in and package it well, they'll find it. We, we get a phenomenal response to things like BTN, behind the news we run, just enormous uh, feedback. And I think the American experience of you know, John Stewart and Colbert packaging news in an entertainment guise has proved to be quite successful. So I think, it's, I, I, th I think you can make a case that young people have never been more internationally minded, never been more globally minded, but the challenge for traditional media outlets like us is how you find and, and create and package news in a way that A, they will find it, and B, they'll find it uh, compelling when they do find it. Peter, are you optimistic? I am optimistic. I have two young children. We force them to watch the news. That probably doesn't work as well with 15-year-olds, I guess. Um, look, I think it's a big challenge. There's no argument about that. I do think that, there are, that, you know, if you think back at your own sort of life in terms of how you use the media, you know, I mean, when I was 15, I probably, you know, wasn't... I maybe read a newspaper once, you know, once a week, maybe. You know, I think it does change uh, in different stages of your life. I do think there's a lot of upside in, in, in uh, Facebook and Twitter and such like, not so much Twitter, but you know, Facebook, uh, for people receiving news in sort of kind of almost, you know, uh, it seeps in. So they do know what's going on in Syria. I mean, that's great, isn't it? You know, they do know it's probably not cool to go on Malaysia Airlines. My oh, final point okay, we'll is... we'll have to cut you off there, no, Peter, no, otherwise no, the other okay, two Okay, can I just make, make one final point, point is that I think we've sentence. reached peak cat. I think we've reached the peak cat uh, moment because... Uh, Simon ran a story last week saying the 100 best 
video, cat videos of all time, so we've reached peak cat, so <laughs> thanks for coming. Simon, the future, have we reached peak cat? No, I don't think we have reached peak cat, or, <laughs> or, or, peak, or peak dog, or peak quokka, or sloth, or sloth. anything. There's lots of animals on the internet. Um, I think um, the thing is, one of the things that really excites me is, is that like on BuzzFeed, we, do, we are trying to do the serious stuff, but also we're trying to package the serious stuff in a way sometimes that, that is accessible to young people, so it's like the most surreal sites for the Syrian civil war or something. That's actually like a, a way that somebody would actually get into something that they would never have got into before, and I think it's actually incumbent on us. That's where our sense of responsibility comes to be engaging with this really young audience. The ABC's average age, I think, is 60-something, is it? Our audience, is, yeah, our audience is very young, so it's really incumbent on new publishers to sort of really be engaging with our audience. And Tim, and, and I agree, I think the hierarchy of news has completely been lost, uh, mainly thanks to Facebook. And our research shows us that almost three quarters of young people um, are getting more of their news from social media, from newspapers or TV. So I think the responsibility lies on us, uh, new media publishers. Um, our aim is to de-stupidify the internet. Um, so encourage your kids to um, follow BuzzFeed, follow Junkie. Um, and, and I have been into the BBC a couple <laughs> of times in the last month to actually speak to their news producers and help them out a little bit. So yeah. It's a good ambition to have. Um, thank you so much for so many good questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. Please thank, thank Tim, Simon, Mark and Peter.